Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. About a million animal and plant species are in danger of disappearing forever. That's one eye-opening fact driving world leaders to address the threat to biodiversity. Leaders from dozens of countries are discussing conservation at this year's United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, and indigenous leaders are advocating for their inclusion in consultation, especially when it comes to land management and conservation. What COP15 could spell for indigenous access to key habitats is coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Lake County Commissioners Monday proposed an ordinance to withdraw from an agreement to provide law enforcement services on the Flathead Reservation. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. The state, Lake County, and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes opted into the federal law known as Public Law 280 in the 1960s. The law requires Lake County to provide law enforcement services on the reservation, but county commissioners say the state isn't paying for the cost of those services, estimated at $4 million annually. In a statement, Governor Greg Gianforte spokesperson Brooke Stroik says the governor's office has tried to help the county find solutions, but wrote, quote, the legislature, not the governor, has the authority to fund PL-280, unquote. Gene Forte signed a bill passed by the state legislature in 2021 to reimburse Lake County for law enforcement costs under PL-280. The bill appropriated $1 for that reimbursement. Lake County commissioners say local taxpayers can't afford to pay for the law enforcement services and that the county will withdraw from the agreement early next year, forcing the state to pick up that work. The county will take public comment on the resolution January 3rd before officially voting on the measure. CSKT spokesperson Shane Morjoe says the tribes declined to comment on the matter. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. The film, The Wind and the Reckoning, was one of the highlights at this year's Anchorage International Film Festival, where it won first place in the narrative feature category. The story I need to tell you is true. I offer and dedicate it to my people, the native Hawaiian. The film has been recognized for its authentic portrayal of native Hawaiians. It's set in the 1800s, just as colonists overthrow the queen and take control of the land. The film takes place in the height of a leprosy outbreak when Hawaiians suspected of having the disease are banished and forced to separate from their families. The film's based on a true story about a rebellion against the provisional government, one that's not well known even among Hawaiians. Stuart Featherin plays Paoa, one of the Hawaiians who was arrested by the government. He says it's a story about love, strength, and a passion for justice. And for him, the movie is more than playing a role, but a responsibility to share the story. It's even deeper than that as well. It's almost like it's it's our duty, like we have to do this. And it just grows deeper and deeper with us. Featherin says the movie is an immersion experience in Native Hawaiian language, history, and culture. The Wind and the Reckoning has won numerous awards for its cinematography and storytelling. At the San Diego Film Festival, it was selected as the audience's choice. 
An indigenous language that has been suppressed by the British government for the past three centuries is now legal, following approval by King Charles this month. Show McPollin reports from Dublin, Ireland. The Identity and Language Bill was negotiated by Irish and British governments two years ago, but it wasn't approved until this month by royal assent. For the first time in history, the Gaelic language now has official status in Northern Ireland, the six counties controlled by the UK. The bill also repealed a 1737 law, which banned the use of Irish in British courts. The next step is implementation, through the appointment of two commissioners, one for the Irish version of Gaelic and the other for its Scottish counterpart. A longtime language activist called the new law historic and said Gaelic's community of speakers have been discriminated against and marginalized. For National Native News, I'm Show McPullen in Dublin. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You've probably seen those car ads, low price, low payments, but when you get to the dealer, there could be a catch. If a dealer isn't honest when it comes to its car ads, tell the Federal Trade Commission at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Some indigenous leaders around the globe are voicing concerns that the international summit going on in Montreal is not adequately incorporating indigenous voices. The International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity, for instance, warns indigenous priorities may not be heard or heeded at the COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference. They worry the direction of one set of international conservation goals, known as 30 by 30, could set up the largest land grab in history. The plan refers to countries agreeing to a goal of conserving 30% of their lands, waters, and ocean areas by the year 2030. That might amount to conservation goals over indigenous access and management. Indigenous environmental leaders are advocating for a seat at the table where decisions about land management are discussed. How should indigenous people be involved in global efforts to conserve biodiversity? How are tribes already involved in local efforts to conserve biodiversity and important habitats? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. On the line in Montreal in Quebec, Canada is Rochelle Diver. She's an Indian collective change maker and an international indigenous rights consultant. And she's Anishinaabe, a citizen of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior, Lake Superior Ojibwe. Rochelle, welcome and thanks for joining us. Miigwech. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Absolutely. Now, Rochelle, you are up there at COP15. So tell us a little bit more about uh, how the conference is playing out and this major criticism that Indigenous voices are not being included in the dialogue. Can you provide more details? How exactly are our voices being excluded? 
Absolutely. Um, I just want to add uh, one more credential uh, to, to the lineup there. I'm here on behalf of the International Indian Treaty Council um, on their delegation, and, and they've been working a long time in the international arena, so I want to make sure they're acknowledged as well. So we arrived on site here, um, leaving our homes on November 30th, uh, ready for uh, International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Biodiversity Caucus, the first and second. Uh, the third through the fifth, we saw the open-ended working group on the post-2020 biodiversity framework. And, and this is where we find the language uh, around the 30 by 30. So this is target three that we're very concerned about. Um, that's now been moved to, to COP15 here. Um, so I will say we do have a seat at the table we're just not eating the same dinner. <laughs> so yeah. our, our voices are heard, uh, but we, we absolutely do not have a vote on the floor. Um, and, and although we're able to make interventions, uh, we're, we're not able to um, change any language or uh, find any way to ensure safeguards for indigenous peoples are included without finding powerful states to insert the language we're looking for. So uh, there's a lot of barriers here to have a full and effective participation for Indigenous peoples. Rochelle, I understand this is a very well-attended event, uh, over 16,000 delegates and various attendees. Do you have any idea of, about how many Indigenous people are present there this week in, in Montreal? I do not know an exact uh, number, um, but I'm going to uh, say in our, in our caucus rooms, uh, we average about uh, 40 to 60 people coming in and out. One of the largest indigenous delegations I've seen at any UN mechanism other than UNFCCC and those COP processes. Okay. Now, some of these calls throughout the, the conference to be more attentive to indigenous voices, are, are the organizers hearing that? Um, we have had some meetings uh, with the executive secretary uh, of the Secretariat of, of the Convention on Biological Diversity. What we're hearing more is Indigenous peoples steward 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity, and that Indigenous voices have to be on the forefront, and that our rights have to be acknowledged. But it really does stop there. If that was something that they were committed to uh, moving to the forefront in a meaningful way, um, then we wouldn't be sidelined in our ability to advocate for ourselves with states. And, and, and really, we deserve a vote. This is our livelihood. These are our lands, territories, waters uh, for our future generations. And that's how all of us Indigenous peoples are looking at this. So to not be able to, to vote to influence the final decision, is, it's, it's truly devastating. And, and it's hard to come in these spaces every day and, and be muffled, be silenced, um, and still try to enter this venue and, and go on. Um, you know, we're on what, day, day 14, day 13 now. Um, you know, people are starting to wear out and they have large delegations, 20, 30 people. They can change, they can rest, um, but we're mostly grassroots advocates that are here 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, so that said, with the time we put in, an acknowledgement that we're the uh, rightful stewards, um, and we are the ones who have got Mother Earth to this this place of, of protecting biodiversity for this long. Um, it's all just false promises, uh, gaslighting, and um, it's, it's really quite insulting to Indigenous peoples. 
And Rochelle, what is the rationale for not giving Indigenous people a, a vote in, in these proceedings? Well, that goes back to the greater United Nations system. Uh, we are classified as observers. Uh, a, a civil society is classified as observers as well. This is the belly of the beast. It is a state-driven process through and through, and it always will be. Um, so the Convention on Biological Diversity is a body that has made room for Indigenous people um, through the IIFB process. Um, and, and listening directly from our caucus on what our positions are, coming to our meetings, allowing us direct meetings with states. So I think that they actually believe that they are giving us a, a voice. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is a vote. Well, <clears throat> some young Native activists, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> made headlines uh, earlier in the conference for interrupting Prime Minister Trudeau's opening address. And uh, you were there for that, I understand. What what was the feedback there? What was the response from, from the Prime Minister and the audience at large? Well, <laughs> um, I think it was quite a surprise. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, miigwetch to the youth um, that stood up in that way and uh, it stopped what was supposed to be um, a, a an opening that's, you know, honoring what, what is uh, meant to happen here at the CBD and really speaking truth to power and bringing attention to the barriers we're facing here and the implications that they could have. So um, really, this is a highly militarized zone right now here at COP15. And they are initiating lockdowns. Um, so if anyone is protesting outside or inside, they immediately lock down the building, meaning nobody in and nobody out. During so the what first... was, uh, was, go ahead. Okay, so these young people then that that interrupted the address were, did they get banned from the from the venue? What was the response? I I I did not hear that they had their badges pulled, but that is the United Nations uh, sort of code of conduct. Um, you are not allowed to uh, have protests inside the venue, and you are in danger then of not only the people protesting lose, losing their badges but the entire delegation of whoever credentialed them. Um, I did not hear that that happened to them, which is, is really great. I would, I would hate to, to hear that, uh, especially the host country Canada would silence um, the voices of the future in that way. Um, but they were escorted out quite aggressively. Uh, it was really uncalled for. I actually was trying to get back in the venue at this time, and they walked uh, people out of the venue and actually forced them into a building across the street. They wouldn't even allow us to stand on the street. Um, I saw at least 10 vans of riot police pull up and jump out with, with the big guns uh, running towards the venue. So they were scaring people, scaring parties, acting like maybe there was an active bomb threat. Um, when really, in the end, um, you know, it was about a dozen youth standing up, singing, and 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 voicing their concerns in a, in a really respectful way. So um, it was really blown out of proportion, um, and they're using this as an excuse to continue to militarize this area every single day. Mm. Wow. R really, really shocking. So, I mean, the conference doesn't wrap up for almost another week. Uh, what can organizers do between now and then to include more Indigenous voices and, and satisfy you and, and some of the other folks that are there that, that they're actually making an effort to be more inclusive? 
Well, really um, amplifying, um, you know, programs such as this, uh, where we're talking from the inside and trying to get a, give a firsthand account of what's going on, uh, following Indigenous um, organizations, Indigenous peoples that are here on the inside and amplifying those messages as well. Uh, it's really important because we're not seeing a lot of media or press that are wanting to um, talk to any opposers. It seems to me they're finding people that are going to give um, softball uh, interviews and, and, and support what, what's going on. They're not looking for counter voices. Uh, so it's important that any media outlet um, that, and individuals are, are amplifying these grassroots voices that the mainstream media will not pick up. We're speaking right now with Rochelle Diver, and she's up there in Montreal, Quebec right now. She's uh, attending the COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference, and lots going on. This is a, a very long convening. It started on December 7th, and it doesn't wrap up until uh, this coming Monday, December 19th. So uh, more than 16,000 delegates uh, from around the world, uh, some of whom are Indigenous, represent Indigenous communities across the globe. And uh, we're learning more about uh, some folks who are dissatisfied with the level of engagement that the conference is uh, partaking with Indigenous voices who um, feel they have a right to be there at the table, uh, a right to vote on some of these pressing issues with regard to biodiversity. So anybody listening today who has any comments, any thoughts on this discussion, biodiversity, COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, or any other biodiversity issues that you might be facing there in your native community, we'd love to hear them. Give us a call. That number, 1-800-996-2848. More with Rochelle Diver after this break. Even in some matriarchal tribes, female leadership is the exception. But women are gaining momentum as both leaders in their tribes and as elected members of outside governments. We're continuing our Tribal Leader series on influential women making hard choices and working to improve conditions for their people. That's on the next Native America Calling. Prevent the spread of flu and other respiratory illnesses by rolling up your sleeve to get a flu shot. Mask up, sleeve up. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information or visit www.medicare.gov slash coverage slash flu dash shots. A message from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The United Nations Conference on Biodiversity, also known as COP15. Are you following it? World leaders are coming up with plans to conserve habitat and endangered species, and some indigenous environmental advocates worry their concerns are being ignored. What important habitats are already protected by your tribe? Are you confident in government and indigenous co-management of land? These are just a couple of questions to think about. And if you've got answers or if you have questions yourself, please join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now is Rochelle Diver, and she's at COP15. And 
Rochelle, uh, at the center of, of these meetings, of these various initiatives, is this goal of what's known as 30 by 30, and uh, it's been described as potentially the, the largest land grab in history if it actually unfolds, and those are really strong words. And tell us uh, what's wrong with this 30-30 plan. Oh, where do I begin? No, <laughs> I will say first and foremost, I absolutely agree with that assessment. Um, it, it, it has the potential to be the largest land grab since European colonization. And the real issue here, well, there are a few issues. Um, first of all, this is the international arena. So the core document around the rights of Indigenous peoples is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that is the minimum standard. That is the floor and not the ceiling. So the 30 by 30, target three, the post-2020 global biodiversity framework is looking at a model of fortress conservation. And by doing this, um, acknowledging that, that we are the stewards of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity and then attempting to encroach on our sovereignty and um, our traditional lands and territories is really, it really highlights uh, what's behind all of this. There, there is a pot of $1.7 billion ready for conservation uh, efforts. Um, so this pot is really the eye on the prize for some states, uh, large environmental NGOs. And we know that many states are using this as a loophole to get access to indigenous lands and territories they were previously not able to do. So under the guise of conservation and, and saving the earth, uh, they will put indigenous lands and territories uh, into what are called protected areas. We've seen this play out in a few different places, uh, Bangladesh on the Chittagon Hill tracks, uh, Tanzania, I think that's the one that made the most international media um, where the indigenous peoples there were forcefully removed from their lands by eco-guards hired by environmental NGOs uh, in the name of conservation. So we're really um, seeing free prior and informed consent uh, thrown out the window um, in, in Turtle Island here. It's an absolute uh, violation of our treaty rights. Um, and globally, it truly is um, undermining and disrespecting the rights of indigenous peoples. So do you think that, that the, the plan could work, uh, provided that uh, when they carry it out, they are more observant and respectful of, of tribal sovereignty and um, also are more engaging with regards to how they include tribal peoples in, in the management of, of the conservation plan? Or do you think that just the whole idea is just, it's just not going to work and it's wrong all the way around? And if, if there are safeguards in place, uh, one thing that is the goal of uh, our delegation here, uh, the International Indian Treaty Council and other allies, is to insert a safeguard into the language around 30 by 30 that says nothing in this post-2020 biodiversity framework um, will undermine the rights Indigenous peoples currently hold or shall hold in the future. Um, this language uh, is currently in the text, but it's in brackets. So that is something that is absolutely crucial for us to have this safeguard in here. Um, but to answer your question directly, I, I do not see a model that will 
respect and uphold Indigenous sovereignty in a meaningful way. We are not interested in co-management, which many of the models um, that is uh, the, the core of, of what they're trying to implement. We don't need co-management. Uh, it's Indigenous peoples who have got us this far, and they have desecrated the other. You know, 20% of biodiversity is gone due to their due to extractive industries, energy projects, damming, uh, chemical pesticide use. So um, they're looking at us to to clean up their mess, basically. So I actually don't see a path forward that can be uh, respectful and uphold our rights in a meaningful way. Um, it is truly our our hopes that um, that this does not go through. Um, it, it actually we can acknowledge that there are areas that could benefit from concert, uh, being a protected area, such as Anwar in Alaska, to protect it from Arctic drilling. Uh, which we know for the former president was trying to open up. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it's 100% um, bad, um, but what I'm saying is that any conservation or protected area project that is implemented needs to come with acknowledgement of the sovereignty of tribal nations in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and Canada and globally. Free prior, the free prior and informed consent of the leaders of that nation um, and acknowledgement of land tenure, because we know not all of our nations, in, in especially in North America, um, are recognized and have that ability to say no. So it's really about acknowledging Indigenous land tenure is the core of this. And down uh, in the United States, uh, is there any momentum uh, that you're seeing in, in the Biden administration or other government entities in implementing any of these 30 by 30 initiatives? Unfortunately, President Biden has already awarded uh, WWF, the World Wildlife, Wildlife Foundation, I believe, or fund um, uh, millions of dollars towards this conservation. So um, although this framework here has not been adopted, countries are already implementing the 30 by 30. And that is crucial to understand here. And for President Biden to allot that money to an environmental NGO, especially one as harmful as WWF that has a history of Indigenous rights violations, um, was shocking and, and very insulting um, to our first peoples here in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, Rochelle, I, wow, this is um, <clears throat> really, really alarming stuff that you're uh, bringing to light here. And I just want to ask, I mean, any positive outcomes uh, that you've come across uh, over the last 10 days up there at COP15? Um. I mean, to see our youth, like I said, standing up and speaking truth to power and see that in the opening of, of COP15, I think it really gave uh, a lot of our people the hope and inspiration we needed um, to enter this, uh, to enter this, oh, I'm just going to say it, to enter this snake pit. I mean, there are a lot of backdoor deals going on. Um, we need to acknowledge this space for what it is. And I would also say um, the, the space created inside uh, for Indigenous peoples to come together and in our common goals, uh, in, our, in, our, in, in moving forward together on how we can, as, as Indigenous peoples, um, lead the effort to, to take back control um, of what these states are trying to impose on us. So that space for us to come together and organize 
has been um, particularly uh, inspirational. Rochelle, thank you so much uh, for all these insights. And uh, again, just having your eyes on the ground there, it's so valuable to, to hear firsthand accounts of uh, this convening. Let's go to our next guest now. Joining us also in Montreal and Quebec, Canada is Thomas Joseph. He's the carbon pricing organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network. He's HOOPA. Thomas, welcome to Native America Calling. Uh, hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Thomas, it just sounds like a, just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of working parts uh, up there in Quebec uh, since December 6th. And tell us more, what role do Native-led grassroots groups like yours play at COP15? Um, so I am uh, part of the Indigenous Environmental Network contingency here, and the role that we play um, is is a lot of intel, is a lot of gathering of the information that's being proposed and how it relates to like the climate COP and implementing market-based mechanisms being used as carbon offsets uh, to allow the continuation of the fossil fuel industry, uh, to allow other corporations to not have to reduce emissions at source, and, and continue burning greenhouse gases and, and global warming. Um, it's, it's vital that we also play a role with the IIFB, the uh, International Indigenous Forum on Biological Diversity Caucus, to make sure collectively that we can implement um, um, safeguards, which is like their term, you know, but there's, we're, we're now at a moment of time where like 30 by 30 is rolling out. Nature-based solutions is a primary objective along with other geotechno fixes. Uh, coming from geoengineering, um, like gene database collection. And so it's also a vital role that in those spaces, uh, we work collectively to make sure that um, the baseline, like what Rochelle was talking about, FPIC and UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples with free, prior, and conformed consent, is actually implemented and upheld. Um, you know, the, the previous targets of, of the biodiversity, carp, um, uh, biodiversity conference have not been met. There's that's two failures. And yet in this second, this third attempt, we're still pushing for the bare minimum when really we understand that indigenous peoples have had uh, the, the ability to protect 80% of the, wild, the world's biodiversities. We should be thinking about this differently and how can we extend the rights of indigenous people to have more say and more tenure over their ancestral territories, even beyond what their nation states have agreed upon. So even beyond like within Turtle Island, the treaty boundaries. You know, you can look at the, like my tribe, for example, living in the Six Rivers National Forest. There's a lot of, we're surrounded by a lot of state and federal land. They should be handing jurisdiction over to us, not in a co-management style. They have proven for 200 years that they cannot manage the biodiversity within their territories. And we have proven for thousands of years that we can. So not okay. moving forward with a co-management status, but moving forward with full ability to have, to use our traditional knowledge in managing these lands. And how are folks like you working to ensure that that happens, that it doesn't turn into a co-management plan and that tribal nations and other interests uh, receive the full accord that they are due with regard to, to implementing these plans? Uh, it's, it feels like you're really banging your head against the wall, um, but it, it's, it's uh, important that we talk to nation states. Um, we have some allies, states that are uh, some parties, what they call them here inside COP, um, that are willing to uplift a lot of our um, ideals and values, uh, speaking like to Mexico, especially Bolivia. Um, but it's also vital that we continue to network with other NGOs. And I think that's one of the positive aspects that I see that's going on with COP15 compared to the climate COP, which is a little bit more 
um, engageful from a larger, you know, climate cop at 40,000. We're here in Montreal at 16,000. Um, but the, the civil society is willing to listen and has a greater understanding of the importance of protecting and uplifting Indigenous peoples and their rights. And it's, it's, we need to continue to engage with civil society and NGOs uh, to, to push the parties that be to, to do more. At the heart of so many of these types of issues with regard to to tribal nations not being uh, given their due uh, with regard to their sovereignty being respected and other rights, it has to do with this whole nation to nation relationship. And I'm curious there at COP15, the, the other nations around the world that you have interacted with, do you get a sense that, that those countries are, are willing to deal with First Nations people and, and, and tribes in the U.S. in that nation-to-nation framework? Not really. What I see is um, is another land grab, that these governmental nations know the importance of, of looking like they want a nation-to-nation agreement, know the importance of, 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 of showing that they have an interest in uplifting and protecting indigenous peoples and, and their lands and territories, but really they want access to those lands and territories. And the mechanisms that are being used uh, is going to be able to invite uh, private industry into indigenous lands as well as governmental nations. And then you look at the United States, they're not even here as an active party in the Biodiversity Conference, but yet sub-nations like uh, our sub-governments like the state of California comes here pretty aggressively uh, knowing that you know, they want access to those unceded indigenous territories. Thomas, uh, 30 by 30, are, are you uh, as big a critic of it as Rochelle is? Yes, I am. 30 by 30 is just the continuation of colonialization. It's a, it's, it is a land grab. Um, they, they are, uh, it is part of the, the, the method of moving forward for them and their, in their site. Um, but there, there is no desire to truly protect the biodiversity. The only desire is to how can they continue to commodify our Mother Earth and, and allow private industry and themselves as governing parties to have access to unceded indigenous lands. What would be a better model then? Have you and, and some of these other indigenous groups uh, created some, some parallel models that w- could maybe work better than 30 by 30? Yeah, another model would be land back. I spoke to it a little bit earlier, giving tribal nations the ability um, to to have more uh, say over the tenure of their ancestral lands. Um, you know, there's a lot of state lands, there's a lot of federal lands that, that can be handed back and not in a co-management ideal system, but in a, you know, there's already money allocated to operate the national forest. There's already money allocated to operate state forests. And so those funds could go directly to indigenous peoples to manage those lands uh, without the, the concept of, of mutual management. Um, you know, the global north has, has a debt to pay. Their, their loss and damage was a, was a huge part of the conversation in COP27 that was highly ignored. But the, this global crisis that we're in and this loss of biodiversity that, that's affecting us all is because of the, the elite status of the global north countries um, abusing our Mother Earth, commodifying our Mother Earth, uh, disrespecting indigenous peoples on their lands. And so what is the reverse of that? You know, the reverse of that is allowing indigenous peoples to manage those lands and also acknowledging that loss and damage restitution does need to be paid.
But when you look at how they funnel money down to the indigenous communities, those governmental uh, states, those parties, take the majority of that money. 80%, 87% of the funds that were allocated to indigenous peoples was taken by governments, and only 13% went to tribal peoples. And then you got to even consider that 13%. A lot of that was probably absorbed by tribal administration and the colonial governments that we now have to operate under, which means probably pennies in the barrel actually went to the people that are directly affected by bio loss, by biodiversity loss and climate change. We're speaking now with Thomas Joseph. He is also up in Montreal this week at COP15, and, and he'll be there until next week when the conference wraps up. Anybody with a question, with a comment, uh, please share your thoughts on this biodiversity convening, United Nations uh, organized. Uh, it's a big event, a huge event, and uh, the implications reach far and wide throughout Indigenous communities across the globe. Our number, 1-800-996-2848. We'll talk more with Thomas Joseph right after this break. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. How do we improve global biodiversity? World leaders are making decisions at the COP15 summit in Canada. We know there are also ongoing conservation efforts spearheaded by tribes. The question is, what is your tribe or native community or group doing to conserve indigenous and important species? Still time to join our discussion. Let us know your thoughts. Again, what biodiversity conservation efforts are going on in your native community headed by native people? That's the question we really want to get to the heart of today. So please give us a call if you can help us answer those questions. 1-800-996-2848. We're joined by Rochelle Diver with Indian Collective and also Thomas Joseph. He's with the Indigenous Environmental Network. And Thomas, before break, you mentioned that... Um, these funds that are earmarked for indigenous biodiversity efforts, uh, 87% of those funds get siphoned off to non-native interests. Uh, can you provide some details? Why? How does that happen? These monies that are supposed to go specifically toward native efforts just get taken by other groups, other governments. Um, the question why is, is, uh, is, the, is the tricky part, right? Um, they're absorbed by um, governments. They're absorbed by other NGOs. They're absorbed by people trying to act like they're acting on our behalf, like nature conservancy um, groups. Uh, and so then very, very little get trickled down. And so part of the work that we're trying to do here is making sure that those funds that are coming down go directly to those indigenous communities without anybody in between taking out the middleman. Okay. Thomas, sometimes when we hear about some of these these huge global challenges, these crises, for instance, like, for example, this week, biodiversity, and you hear some people say, well, we're almost to that point where we're past that point where we can really rectify some of these issues. And, and regardless of 
whether it's 30 by 30 or some other plan or, or whether native nations uh, are given the sovereignty and the right to to manage these lands independently or, or whether they have to ultimately succumb to some sort of a co-management plan some people might say either way you know it's just it, it, this isn't really going to work we're already too far gone in terms of the amount of of damage that's been done to the planet to mother earth what's your response when you hear people say things like that uh i think there's a they need to see like the real situation that we're in. And so let's take a, a professor, for instance, that needs to develop a curriculum for a, a, a college course. And this professor is forced to work with a first grader to create a curriculum that's going to, to be effective. And so that's what we're dealing with. Uh, indigenous peoples have a long history, a traditional knowledge-based structure that, that predates any Western university or Western science mythologies. And so we are the professors in this storyline. Uh, we have the greatest amount of, of, of knowledge in order to protect the biodiversities. That's why 80% of the world's biodiversities are in our tenure. And we're being forced to work with a first grader in developing this curriculum that has a very little knowledge base that is still trying to catch up with their science to the knowledge that we hold, that they're still trying to understand and grasp the reciprocal relationship that's needed with land and place in order for us to have a, a vibrant biodiversity. You know, we, you know, people say that uh, we're not uh, we're not land defenders. We're not we're not land we're not defenders protecting the land. We're land protecting itself. It's the same concept. We are part of that biodiversity. So we are simply uh, being forced with these co management styles. To, to downgrade and downplay what is really necessary to protect the biodiversity. And when you look what's going on here in COP15, uh, biodiversity protection is not their primary focus. Their focus is their uh, how can these global north countries stay in elite status with their economies? And how can they make sure that when we address biodiversity protections and climate climate crisis, that we implement market-based mechanisms that will continue to commodify our Mother Earth, that, they, that we can make money off of protecting biodiversity, that we can make money off of addressing the climate crisis instead of doing what is really necessary to protect biodiversity. Let's go to the phones. We have Jeff listening on WOJB in Bayfield, Wisconsin. Jeff, thanks for calling in today. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. I enjoy uh, converse, uh, talking about these topics because I care, and um, I have cared ever since I was a little boy. Um, even though I'm a white man, I do feel a connection to the Great Spirit, and uh, as a little boy, I grew up with a connection and a knowledge of uh, more than Christian symbols in terms of my relationship with the earth. And the reason I'm calling today is I've been listening to the topic. And I, I think that we would uh, benefit more from more language about healing and, um, you know, a softer uh, focus instead of sounding like a victim. Because, um, you know, the planet is at the mercy of all races. And, you know, I think we have an overpopulation problem. And I think if um, the topic was about Reducing our population, we could allow the earth to heal itself and possibly heal us. I think we need a new language uh, to uh, push the conversation in a new direction. That's my opinion. 
Jeff, thank you for calling in. And let's, I'm going to go ahead and have both of our guests today respond to that. And I'd like to start with Rochelle Diver. Rochelle, we hear this a lot. People say, look, you know, the math just doesn't work. When you have 8 billion people on a planet and you have so many internal combustion engines and so many fossil fuel plants and you have so many people eating beef and, and these other, it, it's just, there's too many people. It's unsustainable. And, and we need to focus more on that and those issues over population than some of these other issues that might not be uh, as easy to talk about. Uh, or, or harder to talk about it, excuse me. Um, what's your response w when you hear comments like what Jeff just shared, Rochelle? Uh, well, of course, uh, first and foremost, of course, the lens we're looking through is is that lens of spirituality, of our future generations, of uh, protecting what's left of Mother Earth and trying to keep these, um, you know, dark interests away from you know, further desecrating what we, what we have left. So I don't think it's a lack of spiritual will or um, that, um, you know, this is always what Native people are bringing into the conversation, first and foremost. Uh, second is the politics. You know, this is not what we were, uh, the arena we were meant to be in. But, uh, you know, if we weren't here, uh, of course, it would end even worse. Um, so just, you know, to clarify that, you know, we are grassroots community people that are here defending our lands and territories. We just happen to be doing it in an extremely political space. Um, so it's it's a delicate balance for us. Um, and, yeah, you know, um, I, I'll stop there and let maybe um, Thomas pick this up. Okay. Okay. Yeah, please. Thomas, uh, overpopulation. Does, is that where the conversation needs to start? I don't believe so. I believe that we need a system change. You know, it's always uh, it's always pushed to the indigenous people to bend, uh, to to assimilate to the to the concepts of the dominant narrative. When really, when we are going to move forward with real solutions to address the crisis situation that we're we're stepping into, it's it's the Western ideologies and the Western science that needs to bend towards us. Uh, we're we're not to you know, our our days of bending need to come to an end. The, the days of, of Western science knowing the importance of indigenous knowledge playing a front role in addressing climate change, uh, in, in, in addressing the protection of our biodiversities, is what needs to happen. Um, you know, this, there, there's plenty, there's plenty of food and water for everyone if we take care of it. You know, um, dehumanizing human populations—we've seen that in the past, and, and, and what happens and the outcome of that. Um, I, you know, I don't believe that that. Uh, that the population has anything to do with the situation. It's the relationship or the lack of relationship that we have with our mother Earth is the problem. You know, we can't continue our normal practices. We must keep fossil fuels in the ground. You know, we need to, we need to end the current practices that got us into this problem, not terminate human populations. Interesting. So, um, you say that there are enough, there's enough water, there are enough resources to support uh, the 8 billion people on the planet now, but perhaps in the future, at some point, maybe it's not the place to start the conversation over population, but at some point down the road, maybe further on, is there is there any room for that discussion over population? Or do you think that, again, as you say, um, that's just pushing tribes and native nations to bend? Um, 
I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the discussion that we need to to, to focus on. Uh, what we need to, what we need to focus on is our relationship to place and to Mother Earth, and to know that this continuation of the disrespect and the commodification is what got us in this problem. And and humans, by nature, uh, you know, we can see in the United States how the the um, uh, Anglo-Saxons or, or white people are, are having less children. You know that seems to to navigate its own its own self. I, when we start thinking of of other uh, issues instead of what's really causing climate change, then we're missing the ballpark here. Let's focus on the cause of climate change, which is colonialism, which is capitalism and patriarchy, uh, and 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 address those issues. Then we can start moving forward with real solutions to climate change. And when we get misconstrued, focusing on like, oh, human population, or how can we make sure that our economies are going to continue to stay vibrant, then we're we're not focusing on real solutions to climate change. Colonialism, the basis of climate change, um, and I'm just going to double down here, Thomas, for the sake of of, of a good conversation today. Uh, we heard Jeff, the caller, and he mentioned. Uh, avoiding framing this uh, as victims. And when we hear comments such as that, colonialism is the root cause of so many uh, of these crises. Uh, do you feel in any way that uh, maybe we are painting ourselves to be too much of a victim and maybe we would benefit from maybe altering that uh, that profile a little bit? And so when we, you know, Jeff also brought up healing. And when we talk about healing, healing also comes with accountability and acknowledging the errors of, the, of, of what caused the damage. And so when we move forward as, as stating that colonialism has caused climate change, that's, that's acknowledging that, the, that the, the disrespect of indigenous values, peoples, and land has caused a crisis. And for us to continue to use uh, colonial tactics to address this crisis, it's not going to get us out of it. And so let's be accountable to the past. Let's understand that in order to move forward and not, not only heal our communities and to heal our Mother Earth, we need to address those, those dominant issues that have caused it. And so when we use things like market-based mechanisms and land grabs like 30 by 30, that is a continuation of colonization. When we allow the private sector and government parties to, to access unceded indigenous territories using systems like nature-based solutions and forest offsets and, and geotechno fixes, then that's a continuation of colonization. And so for order for us to heal as a people, as a human race, and for our Mother Earth to heal, we must address those root causes. Accountability plays a vital role in healing. And Thomas, when you and Rochelle and your colleagues, when you share the data that supports that, that Native people are, are, are the experts in this space when it comes to biodiversity, when it comes to managing these lands, uh, we sit on 80% of these lands that we steward, and, and you have the data to back it up that, look, we know what we're doing. What's the response to some of these governments and some of these other organizations that just don't, that, that keep pitching these co-management models or, uh, or, or worse yet, just want to take control of some of these lands? Um, I, I, I can also let Rochelle chime in, but I, their response is, it, they're thinking of continuing to hold up their economies. And so they hear it, they see it, they know it, but their movement forward is how can they continue to commodify and use market-based mechanisms to implement these strategies? You know, and so 
to, to gain access to those unceded indigenous lands. I mean, they actually need access to them in order for their economies to continue to be held up. If they, if they are, if, if we had true protections and true ability to, to protect our lands from these industries, uh, their economies would, would not be sustainable. They need okay. access to that biodiversity. All righty. Rochelle, anything to add to that comment? Absolutely. Um, just uplifting everything Thomas said. There's absolute truth. Um, and, and in addition to that, if they were truly serious here at the Convention on Biodiversity about protecting um, the remaining biodiversity, we would be addressing pesticides. We would be addressing extractive industries. We would be addressing uh, mercury contamination. These things aren't even on the agenda here. So we've got climate change, biodiversity, uh, chemicals and heavy metals all being addressed in different UN mechanism, but mechanisms, but there's no synergy between them. So if they are truly serious about protecting biodiversity, we need to stop all of these extractive industry projects. You know, once again, going back to capitalism, these are just facts. It doesn't make us victims, although unfortunately we are victims of these. In Minnesota, we're seeing... Um, you know, we want to talk about uh, green energy and, and moving towards electric vehicles. Well, what about transition minerals and where are those going to come from? Minnesota is set to approve the largest um, mine of uh, copper and nickel um, that is going to fill this gap. So this conversation is, is also larger than renewables. And all of it comes back to money and capitalism. So we really just need to take a look at what are the conversations on the table and who is set to benefit from those. And that is how we're going to be able to create and implement effective strategies uh, to combat this, this grab for, for more money and land. Rochelle, thank you for chiming in. And we did have one more caller. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get him on the air, but junior up in Alaska did call and shared with our producers that we need indigenous people to have control. And I think that's really at the heart of this conversation today and what both of our guests uh, have shared with us. So I do want to thank both Rochelle Diver and Thomas Joseph for what's been a riveting conversation on concerns over indigenous inclusion at the COP15 UN Biodiversity Conference. Join us tomorrow for another engaging discussion. We'll talk with female tribal leaders. It's a continuation of our special tribal leader series to gain perspectives and insights. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Close to half of American adults have high blood pressure. Of those, about 75% don't have it controlled. Chief Medical Officer at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, Dr. Luke John Day. Have your blood pressure measured yearly by a healthcare professional and regularly monitor it at home. The American Heart Association has developed the Get Down With Your Blood Pressure campaign using music and dance. Learn more at heart.org slash HBP control. They support this show. How am I talking to you? Is still happy yonka kikchuo. La col zanio wa okio tiliao isama solatri hunters. Lel yayo www.medicare.gov slash coverage slash flu dash shots. Le wot haniki Medicare to Medicaid or Titahiapalo. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.